Father, thank you so much, most of all for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his grace and mercy that changes our souls, that cleanses our hearts and renews our minds. Thank you that we have had the opportunity, so many of us here this morning, to walk out of the grave of our sin and into the light of your grace and the gospel. Thank you for these teens here this morning. Thank you for their love for you, their willingness to use the abilities that you have given them to lead us in worship this morning. We pray that you will add your mercy and strength to their hearts. Draw them ever closer to you with each passing day that they might know what it means to walk with you for their lives. And thank you that we have this privilege this morning to pause, to open your word, and to hear from you. We pray that our hearts would be changed as a result of being together here today. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. I don't know who to blame, if I should blame Catherine for having the kids lead us today or the kids for doing it. I was kind of struggling with my voice before I got here, and now I really am because I can't help but sing my guts out when I'm up here, and especially with their energy, uh, that made me want to sing even more, so bear with me. Uh, Hopefully it doesn't give out on us here this morning. Let me read a couple of brief stories for you. Melissa was just four years old when she lost her mother. It was on July 1st, 2012, when she went to church with her mom as usual in Kenya. Melissa went to Sunday school while their mother, Sandra, joined in worship with the other members of the Africa Inland Church. But the service ended abruptly when gunmen burst into the sanctuary and opened fire on worshipers. Melissa huddled with the other children in Sunday school as worshipers ran from the building. Later, after other parents had collected their children, Sandra's best friend picked up Melissa and told her that her mother was in the hospital. The next day, she was told that her mother died. The attack, carried out by members of the militant Muslim group Al-Shabaab, had killed 14 believers and injured 58. Twelve children were orphaned that day. As a member of the Fulani people group, it was assumed that Dewa was and would remain a Muslim. He moved in with his cousin in a large city in Nigeria, intending to enroll in an Islamic school. But along the way, he decided to use what little money he had to purchase a Bible and learn about Christianity. What he learned led him to abandon his faith in Islam and follow Christ. Moved by the realization he had received salvation, he declared himself ready to die for Jesus. He didn't expect it might come so soon. A few days later, several young men tied Dewu hand and foot, fearing that he might lead others away from Islam, and they decided to eliminate the threat. A crowd gathered to watch as one of the men holding Dewu began to cut the side of his head with a knife. Just then a police van pulled up and everyone scattered, leaving Dewo alone, bound and wounded. What's wrong, the officer asked. I'm a Christian, Dewo replied. I didn't insult anyone, but they wanted to kill me. I'm happy you have found salvation, the officer responded. I'm the only Christian police officer here, but my boss is a Muslim and I don't want him to find out what's going on. Take this money and find a way to leave town as soon as possible. Dewo immediately began to use his Fulani background to witness to Muslims, leading many to Christ. 
The gospel has since spread quickly among the Fulani due in part to Dewo's activity. More than 800 people, including 400 from his own clan, have accepted Jesus Christ. Many of the attack victims being cared for at a Christian-run rehabilitation hospital in the Benue state of Nigeria cannot hide their wounds, casts, and crutches, clearly identify which limbs have been hacked at or cut off by a Muslim extremist machete. But the wounds that 25-year-old Solomon Samela received in a December 2013 attack on his village are less apparent. He has to show you. After quietly and patiently sharing his story of the attack, he takes off his t-shirt and turns toward the wall. The scars and the blistering on his back show that he has suffered severe burns. The burns are the price Solomon paid for refusing to deny Jesus. It is a price he humbly accepts. Christ himself suffered, he says. The salvation that I have in Christ is not free, for it was paid with a price to save me. So I equally feel I am prepared to suffer in persecution for the salvation that I have in Christ. I won't turn back. Now this, unfortunately, although almost completely unheard of in our country, the United States, is happening around the world all the time. Christ followers are marginalized, mistreated, and abused, and in many cases, even lose their lives for their faith. In fact, you may not know this, but over 200 churches every month around the world are targeted, vandalized, and burned. One in six African Christians face high levels of persecution every day. One in three Asian Christians and every year, 100,000 Christians lose their lives in the world because of their faith. Now, those aren't numbers from the first century when Paul was writing to us and while he was suffering. Those are numbers from today, right now, in the 21st century, 100,000 Christians every year lose their lives because of their faith. We've been studying through the book of Philippians, and as we have, we've seen that our theme is that Paul is challenging us as citizens of heaven with the things that we must do. These are not optional for the children of God. Now, this is the fourth week that we've spent in Philippians already. The first week we saw that we must pray for the church. We must pray for each other. We must pray for the church moving out into the community. The second week, we talked about the fact that the church must advance the gospel. We are not to just sit with what we have, but we are to take it out into other places and share the truth with people. And last week, Pastor Tim talked to us about the importance of living for Christ. Remember that verse in in chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 21, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he explained what that means. And today, we are going to be talking about this command that Paul gives us as citizens of heaven, and it is, be willing to suffer. Now, one commentator asks, what do Christians of the first century in Philippi have in common with Christians in the 21st century? He said, both belong to a marginalized minority living in a society driven by values which contradict our deepest commitments as Christ followers. What does that mean? It means simply this, 
that we live in a world whose values are the opposite of ours. Surely you have noticed that in the past few years, in the past few months. This world's values are not ours if we claim to be Christ followers. The result of that is that the life of a true disciple is not an easy path. That's true in cultures that are dominated by Islam and Buddhism, like Africa and Asia in particular. But we are certainly trending away from the biblical convictions that our country was founded upon. And what was once unimaginable is now acceptable. You may have noticed as well that not only are these things acceptable, but we are being pressured to not only accept them, but to celebrate them. That's what's happening in our culture, in our society. And Paul is going to teach us this morning, as we look at a few verses together, four things that we need to know if we are going to walk this path as true disciples of Christ. So I want you to join me in, in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 27 through 30. We'll start with 27. Listen to what it says. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So four things that we need to learn to walk the path of a true disciple in this world. Here's the first one. True disciples stand firm. Now you notice there in that verse he says, let your manner of life be worthy. The phrase manner of life literally means to live as a citizen. Now one of the things that I want to make sure of one of the things that is the burden of my heart and Tim's and our elders and leaders of this church is that you would know beyond the shadow of a doubt of what kingdom you're a citizen. Are you a citizen of heaven? Make clear in your heart that you are a child of God. And if you are a child of God, a citizen of heaven, Paul says you need to live worthy of your citizenship. Worthy of the salvation that you have received by the gospel. The word worthy there just means fitting. It means suitable. It means the worth matches the value. Now obviously we know, for those of us that know anything about the gospel, we know that we're not worthy to receive the gospel, right? Nod your head if you understand that. That grace the grace of God brings salvation. That's what Paul says in the book of Titus. So we're not worthy to receive it. But after we receive it, by God's grace, he calls us to live in a way that matches the value that Christ has put on us. How do we know the value that Christ has put on us? How do we know that God loves us? Very simply, by looking at the cross. If you ever struggle in your life with the feelings of, I'm not worthy, I'm not worth anything, I don't bring any value to this world, to my family, to my community, you need only to look at the cross. 
and understand that God places a tremendous amount of value on you because he sent his son to die on the cross for us, for you. And this is what Paul is talking about. He's saying, you're a child of God. You're a child of God. So when you live your life, you need to do it in a way that matches that value that God puts on you. If you're a parent and you have ever wrestled with your children's behavior, I should say, if you're a parent, when you have wrestled with your child's behavior, Tim was talking a few minutes ago about when our kids had runny noses and dirty diapers, and trust me, after that stage comes other stages that are no more pleasant as we try to mold them into responsible little adults. You can look at your child and say, look, you're a young, live up to your family name. Maybe that's not a good example. <laughs> you're a Knowles, you're a Wessels, you're a Coombs. Live up to your family name. We have a reputation here in this community of being upstanding citizens. And that's what Paul's saying here. Friends, brothers, sisters, look at what Christ has done for you. You need to live up to the family name. God has given it to you. In Romans chapter 5, Paul talks to us about the grace that God extends to us in salvation. And then in chapter 6, he talks about what difference that makes in our lives as Christ followers. And in Romans 6, he says, we need to be dead to sin. We can't live that way anymore. And every time we sin as a Christ follower, it mocks Christ's sacrifice. Only let your manner of life be worthy. Whatever happens, Paul says, whatever happens, this is the most important thing. That your life matches that value he puts on you. Now, a lot of things in our lives will change over the years. Those of us who have lived a few more decades than these kids know that. But living in such a way that matches our identity as citizens of heaven must never change. That's why Paul says a true disciple stands firm. What could change? Well, one time, I, I, I truly wish I could remember where I read this or heard this. I heard someone say that our lives are often measured by what we have lost. And when we live life on this earth, we lose. What changes? Well, sometimes we might lose a spouse or a child or a parent. We might lose our health. We might lose our livelihood. And that makes this a tough command to choke down no matter what. Paul says, no matter what, you have to live this way. How do we do that? Well, he says, we stand firm in one spirit. One of the ways we do it is by doing it together. I've said this before. Tim has said this before. I mean it no less every time I say it. It strengthens my heart to be here like this with you. It encourages me to see them up here doing that. It encourages me to stand down here and sing and hear you behind me singing. 
It encourages me to see you guys in these other theaters, to see you folks at home listening, learning, growing, living in a way that honors God. He says we do it by standing firm in one spirit together, one mind, striving side by side. That phrase, striving side by side, means to cooperate vigorously. It actually is an athletic term, which I appreciate. If you know anything about the NFL, <clears throat> condolences, Steve. Feel bad, brother. Sorry about that last night. I had no dog in the fight, so I, I feel bad for you. <laughs> Steve, unfortunately, is a Green Bay Packer fan, and we all know what happened last night. When you watch football, if you know anything about the NFL, almost every year, the most valuable player in the league is a quarterback. Almost every year. Sometimes it's a running back, but almost every year it's a quarterback. Why? Because he takes the ball, he throws it, he hands it off, he does all these amazing things with it, and everybody gets puts all their attention on the quarterback. But I want to tell you something. No quarterback would ever win the MVP if it wasn't for his offensive line. Those are the great big guys. They're like 6'6", 320. They have numbers like 97, 89. You don't know their names. They look like they're going to burst out of their uniforms. They have these helmets on their giant heads. And they stand in front of the quarterback and they just shove those guys back, those defenders. If they do their job right, the quarterback has time to run or throw or hand off or whatever it is he has to do. But they stand there together and they make a wall in front of the quarterback. That's what Paul is saying right here. Striving side by side forming a wall so that we just push our way downfield. We push our way through life so that the enemy's attacks can't break through. That's what we need. That's the only way we can do this. If we were to take any one of you, whoever you are, whatever your background is, however strong your faith is, if we were to take you and put you alone right out in the middle of all the wolves... It would probably be a short story. Paul says we strive together side by side, cooperating vigorously together so that we can stand firm, so that we can keep going. Verse 28. And do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So number one, true disciples stand firm. Number two, hopefulness is an indication of God's work in us. Paul says, don't be frightened by persecution. And you might be saying, that's easy for you to say, buddy. You don't have to face what I have to face. Well, actually, that's not true. <laughs> Remember, Paul was in jail when he was writing this. Paul had been beaten, he had been whipped, he had been stoned, he had been shipwrecked, he had been left for dead, he had been arrested and thrown in jails more times than we can count.
when we live our lives worthy of the kingdom, when we stand firm in the truth, when we live in a way that distinguishes ourselves from the world, when we take heat, when we face opposition, even when we are persecuted, it tells us two things, Paul says. Number one, it tells us that they are part of the other kingdom. And number two, it tells us that we're on the right track. That's what Paul says here. Don't be frightened by your opponents because it is a clear sign. A proof, a reassurance that we are from his. And the clear sign, he says, of your salvation and that from God. So when we face persecution and or suffering we can experience hopefulness in the middle of it because of these proofs and also because it shows that God is at work in your life. When you face pushback because you are de deciding to stand on the truth instead of compromise, it is a sign that you are going in the right direction. That he is working in you to make you a different kind of person than is so easy to be by just going along with the world. Now, this isn't natural. We don't seek opposition. We don't seek discomfort. But the fact that we can stand firm in the face of it tells us that our strength is from God. And that should bring us hope. I have to tell you something. I am not hopeful about this world at all. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not a sunny optimist in any area of my life, and certainly not in the area of this world. I don't have a lot of hope for this world. But I do have hope because I see that God is working despite everything that's going on. And while I don't have a lot of hope that this world will be completely transformed... I do have a lot of hope about the future in eternity. And despite how difficult it is to face opposition in this world, despite how difficult it is to stand up and say, I believe in the truth of the word of God, the same truth that was written thousands of years ago that has never changed. I know that I can stand because God is at work in my life. And he is at work in your life. And he is at work in our church. Now listen to this verse very closely. The next verse, verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Here's number three. Third thing you need to know. Salvation and suffering are connected. Oh, really? <laughs> really? Folks, Paul tells us here very clearly, God has given you a gift that is your salvation. He's given you that gift. In fact, you need to know that even your ability to believe, even your capacity to have faith that God loves you and that Christ died for you, even the ability to believe that is a gift from God. Did you know that? 
You don't even have the ability to believe in Christ. But God gives you that too. How do we know that? Well, Jesus himself said it in John 6. He said, no one can come to me except the Father, what? Draws him. What does Paul say in Romans 3? He says, there are none who understand. There's no one who seeks God. There is no one who does anything righteous. Not even one. God draws you to himself. He opens your eyes. And your salvation is a gift that he gives you. Your faith is a gift that he gives you. We can claim absolutely no credit. The word granted here, it has been granted to you, is the word charizomai. The word grace is the word charis. And charizomai means grace granted Grace extended to you. But I want you to see here that he says, it has been granted to you not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now I would hazard a guess that of everybody gathered here or anybody watching at home or anybody that listens to this later in this week, I would hazard a guess that most of you understand that the salvation that you have is a gift from God. Nod your head if you're on, the, on that same track with me. Okay. But how many of you understand and believe that your suffering is a gift from him as well? Just like your salvation is a gift, your suffering is a gift. Now that is extremely difficult for us to understand. But this is what Paul says, not only to believe, but also to suffer. We need to understand something. And the only way that we can understand it is by tracking through it here one little bit at a time. If he grants us suffering with our salvation, then we must know that suffering is not a sign of God's abandonment. Suffering is not a sign of God's displeasure with us. And here's the hardest part. Suffering is a sign of Christ's love and his grace, and his salvation. That's what Paul is saying. Salvation and suffering are connected, not only, but also. In other words, Paul is saying, we cannot have the one without the other. We can't say, oh God, please give me salvation. Thank you so much. Save me from my sin. Make sure I don't have to go to hell. Thank you. I don't want the other part, just the salvation. I'm good. No suffering, please. I'll take A, not B. Paul says, it has been granted to you by the grace of God, not only that you be saved, but that you suffer. Now, we're not talking about the consequences of our sin. That's different. That's not given to us by the grace of God. That's your punishment for walking away from God and choosing wrongly. There are consequences of our sin that we suffer. That's not what we're talking about. 
when we come to this point, what we say is, there's no way that this is right. Mike, you seem like a decent guy, but you've lost your mind because there's no way this is true. There's no way that God would ever do that if he truly loved me. There's no way he would cause me to suffer. I want you to think about two things. Number one, I want you to think about how deeply God used the suffering of Jesus to bring you salvation. God wouldn't make me suffer. He loves me. How do you think he feels about his own son, Jesus? But he caused him to suffer so that you could have salvation. By the way, without the suffering of Jesus, you wouldn't have your salvation. And think about this as well. Think about God's desire for you to be, what? Like Christ. How can I be like Christ if I don't learn to trust him in my suffering? Peter and the apostles were preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 5. And they were beaten and they were arrested and they were hauled in and they were trying to figure out what to do with them. And they decided to beat them again and send them back out and, and, and make them swear that they would never preach the gospel again. If you read the end of Acts chapter 5, you'll read that that's not exactly what happened. Instead, the disciples, it says, gladly took their beating and rejoiced. Rejoiced because they were honored to suffer the way that Christ had done. Will I ever trust Christ completely and utterly until I have to? No, I won't and neither will you. You'll never trust Christ completely until you absolutely have no choice. Suffering and salvation are connected. One more thing. Did one of you guys change my watch? Because it says 11 o'clock. I'm not done yet. I'll try to speed things up a little. Here's verse 30. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Here's number four. Suffering is meant to be shared. Listen, folks, humanity has only one hope, whether it knows it or not, and that's the transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only hope that the world has. It's not education. It's not saving the planet. It's not wind and solar. It's not a better government. It's not a growing economy. So we have to be engaged in this fight for the gospel. That's what Paul says. We must be willing to endure whatever it is that God places in front of us to endure as a result of our union with Christ. Because this is it. This is the only hope that the world has. This is the only hope that your neighbors have, that your family members who are far from God have, that this world has, is that somebody shares the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. So we have to be engaged in this conflict together. That means whatever disagreements, whatever personality conflicts, whatever hurts or offenses or sins or whatever have to all be set aside for the sake of the gospel. Solidarity requires selflessness. You know what solidarity is, right? Solidarity is a group of people motivated by common belief that head in the same direction to accomplish a task. And the only way that works is selflessness. It requires humility. And the way that we acquire humility is by walking through the fire together. Walking through the pain together. 
in our brotherhood, we appreciate and we experience this crucible of suffering. That's the only way. The grace that we experience when suffering silences our fears. But it does something else too. The grace that we experience when suffering also shatters our pride. It begins to melt away our edgy competitiveness. It starts to smooth out our bristly impatience with each other. See, suffering humbles us. Suffering brings us to our knees. And we need that humility. It's the only thing that will bring us together. The life of a true disciple is not an easy path because we're strangers in a foreign land. I want to challenge you this morning. Challenge you this morning that while people around us at large in our culture, and even churches around us, unfortunately in many cases, are lowering the bar of what it means to be a Christ follower, or a compromising truth and doctrine in order to be inclusive, or to avoid persecution or ridicule, or just to maintain comfort, that in, in light of all of that, in spite of all of that, we as a church need to raise the bar. We need to raise the bar. We need to call each other to uncompromising, unflinching stand on the unchanging truth of the Word of God. It's never been more important than it is right now. I want to ask you this as we close. Are you willing to consider that your suffering, current or future, is a gift from God? A gift that to you, that you might be drawn closer to him than you've ever been. A gift in that it could give you an opportunity to share Jesus' love and the gospel with people around you. By the grace of God, we can walk through this together toward the hope of eternity. Friends, no one enjoys suffering but consider the fact that God will use the events of our lives to humble us and by his grace draw us together so that we can move forward into what God is calling us to be and to do. Father, we thank you for the truth of Scripture this morning. Thank you that there are truths of Scripture that comfort us and truths that challenge us. Truths that make us feel like you are wrapping your arms around us and truths that make us feel like you are trying to break us. We need them both. And this morning I pray that you would strip away our preconceived notions about the difficulties of life and understand that you want nothing more than for us to humble ourselves and knit our hearts together in your love so that we might care for the people around us and share the truth of the gospel. Would you continue your work in our hearts and lives, Lord? Would you shape us? Would you make us the people that you want us to be for your glory 
In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. I hope you have a great week.